Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of murder, gore, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The whole point of a wedding was to take as many pictures for social media as possible. Julia had been in hundreds today, and they had only just sat down for dinner in the Congress Plaza Hotel's Gold Room, a hall of opulence with plaster angels that looked down at the guests. Her friends couldn't have picked a better Instagram backdrop than this stunning yellow room with its deep cutout, high ceilings, and soft mood lighting, just enough to add a soft glow without needing a flash. Julia corralled several of her friends together, wanting to capture them with the angels just above their heads. Everyone pressed in, and Julia hit the big white button on her phone. She pulled up the photo for everyone's approval, but there was no one in the picture, just the background. Julia tried again. They were all headless, empty necks standing against an ornate gold wall. Her friends were getting restless, tired of holding their smiles for too long. She told them to give her a chance and she would fix it. There was just something wrong with her camera, some failure in portrait mode. She flipped the camera into forward facing and shot a quick test picture of herself. Her head was there, but her eyes were glassy. Her skin had faded to a greenish yellow. A large cut slashed through her face. Julia squinted, confused, her finger trailing along the gash. But as it moved, the picture did too, her doppelganger's mouth wide in a silent cry of anguish. A high-pitched scream echoed through the gold room, as if filling in the gap between picture and reality. She froze, wondering what else would follow from the strange world behind the glass. Then. Something slashed at her face. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Congress Plaza Hotel, a century-old icon of Chicago that has played host to some of the city's worst criminals and darkest tragedies, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. First opening its doors in 1893, the Congress Plaza Hotel was part of the staggering construction boom that led up to the World's Columbian Exposition, otherwise known as the Chicago World's Fair. The 14-floor hotel was originally known as the Auditorium Annex, reflecting its connection to Louis Sullivan's grand auditorium building just across the street. 
The two buildings overlook Lake Michigan and what is now known as Grant Park, one of Chicago's most important green spaces. The hotel has changed hands a number of times in its history, but the most interesting landlord associated with the building was actually the owner of a far different and far more dangerous hotel, just a few miles down State Street. Legend has it that the notorious Chicago serial killer, H.H. Holmes, would loiter in the lobby of the annex to charm young women into staying with him at his infamous murder castle, a series of torture chambers that masqueraded as a boarding house. There were new visitors coming to the exposition every day. It was inevitable that there would be no room at the inn, leaving Holmes the perfect opening to do a bit of sinister business. Charlotte was a firm believer in her intuition. She hadn't been blessed with a clever wit or radiant beauty, but she had good instincts. They had kept several of her friends from ruin, and on one memorable occasion helped her father make a substantial amount of money on the stock exchange. But now her gut honed in on something far less favorable. Charlotte's friend, Nanny Williams, had left for Chicago several months ago. She'd never returned but a letter had arrived in her name. It said she was moving to Europe with a man she'd met at her sister's wedding. But Charlotte had trouble believing it. She knew love could make people mad sometimes, but she could never match the frivolity in the letter to her dry and witty best friend. Since then, Charlotte had constant nightmares of Nanny calling for help, choking on the stale and acrid air around her in a dingy hallway opening a door that wasn't a door at all, but a wall, a dead end. Nanny's body convulsed as she clutched at her neck and tried to scrape words out of her ragged throat. Charlotte always woke up shivering, haunted. She told her father that she was traveling to Chicago for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, in truth, she was looking for the brother Harry that Nanny had referenced in her letter. The city was full of life, but Charlotte saw death on every corner. The dangling buckets of the Ferris wheel could so easily slip off their rails, plummeting to the ground far below. The newfangled cars were unpredictable. Gangs of men fought in public, unconcerned about the consequences. Tales of suicide and murder were whispered on the streets. For the first time in all of American history, it was possible to disappear in plain sight, and no one would come looking. There were just too many people moving in and out of the city at once. She found herself drawn to Lake Park and to the wall of windows that composed architect Louis Sullivan's auditorium. But the auditorium wasn't alone in its splendor. The facing building was referred to as the Auditorium Annex, a cruel joke considering its stunning facade and staggering size. It was a truly palatial hotel, an ornate lighthouse in the dark and murky waters of Chicago's streets. The lobby looked more like a painting than a real thoroughfare. Classical arches surrounding inlaid marble, polished to shine under the chandeliers that hung from the vaulted ceiling. Plush furniture dotted the lobby, where guests, clothed in furs, lounged about before heading to the exposition. 
Charlotte found her own chair and took in the crowd. A man sat down across from her. He had soft features and kind eyes, but his hair made him stand out, bushy eyebrows and a thick handlebar mustache. She could barely make out his top lip as he smiled at her. He called himself Howard. He told her that he couldn't help but come over and introduce himself. She smiled at him, her gaze lingering on his eyes. There was a secret hidden in his irises, the kind you feared, but still desperately wanted to know. Howard asked her if she was staying in town for long. She asked him how he knew she wasn't local. Her wild-eyed wonder made it clear to him that she wasn't from around here, he said with a charming smile. He asked her where her chaperone was. Charlotte told him that she had always hated the idea of them, so she had abandoned the concept altogether. A modern woman, Howard said in agreement. He offered to get her a brandy. She accepted. Her eyes followed him as he walked away. He filled out a suit nicely. A high-pitched squeal of laughter came from the table next to hers. Charlotte jumped in her seat. She needed that brandy more than she thought. A day's worth of searching had left her on edge, questioning everything but the man who had been kind enough to sit down and talk with her. He returned with her glass. Charlotte was no lady. She didn't believe in dainty sips or pretending that alcohol might be too strong for her. She downed the drink in one go. His musical laugh filled her ears. She had surprised him. Good. She liked to keep a man on his toes. They chatted idly for several minutes. Her head started to feel strange, as though pieces of her brain were climbing out of her ears, falling to the ground with a wet slap. Howard's mouth moved, but she couldn't quite make out the words. She tried to tell him that she wasn't feeling well, but the words came out loud and harsh rather than the quiet noise she had expected. He frowned at her, approaching her slowly. She was a wild animal that he was intent on corralling. Charlotte saw no need to be fenced in. She was only sitting in a chair. Respectable people did that all the time. But when she looked down, she saw that the ground was moving. The chair was several feet away. Howard's arms were holding her shoulders to keep her up. She wanted to push him off, but her arms felt numb. She willed herself to move them, but they stayed where they were. From far away, Howard's words reached her ears. He was explaining to the people around them that she couldn't handle the delights of city life. He'd seen her alone on the Ferris wheel earlier, clutching her stomach. She must still be feeling ill. Charlotte's blood ran cold. She had been on the Ferris wheel, holding her stomach so the drop forward was easier to handle, but she hadn't spotted Howard around the crowd. He had followed her from the exposition to the hotel, like a wolf stalking its prey. It was a strange thing to be found when you were the one looking for someone else. Otter still, when the person who had found you was a complete stranger, plying you with questions but revealing little about himself, offering you a drink with a gentle smile. Charlotte was having trouble speaking now, her tongue a leaden weight in her mouth. 
she could not push him away when he was the only thing keeping her from meeting the ground. She would have to wait for the effects of the alcohol to wear off, if there was enough time. Howard ushered her up the stairs. She only caught the first number on the door as he hurried her into a room. Four. It didn't feel like they walked up four flights of stairs, but her body wasn't quite her own right now. He laid her back on the bed and walked away. She could hear the scrape of metal against metal. A black leather box sat on the table. Several vials cluttered the wooden surface, as well as a handful of papers. Howard went into the bathroom. Charlotte forced her body to move off the bed. She fell to the floor. On her hands and knees, she crawled towards the desk. Black and brown drops dotted the paper, but she could make out several words. Love. Europe. Harry. She brought one trembling hand up to the table, grabbing the stack. The letters all had the same message. He was accomplished at this ruse. Poor sweet Nanny had fallen into his clutches, and Charlotte had inadvertently done the same. Her body didn't feel quite like her own yet. She got up slowly. The faucet was still running in the bathroom. Charlotte stuffed the letters down the front of her dress and headed for the door. Her hand grasped the handle and she was pulled back. She tried to scream, but there was something over her face. She woke up to the bite of a knife against her arm. Howard was standing over her, his eyes curiously dead. The warmth he had earlier had vanished. He cut through a large section of her arm, tendons severing. As she looked down, she saw him sloughing off the sinews beneath her skin, revealing bone and muscle. Offhandedly, Howard told her that the last girl had only stayed alive for the first arm. She was dead by the time he'd peeled the flesh away from the second. Charlotte tried to speak, but there was something wrong with her vocal cords. Nothing but a dry croak left her lips. Howard smiled down at her. He told her that the nice thing about brandy was that it could cloak any number of flavors, including acid. He went back to slicing her flesh off her bones. Charlotte twisted and turned, but it only brought the knife deeper into her skin. The bones in her forearm were fully exposed now, twisting around each other and leaving a hole where there had once been so much more. Howard hacked the skin off around her elbow and switched arms, telling her to be a good girl and try her very best to stay awake. The last thing she saw was that charming smile. Herman Webster Mudgett, otherwise known as H.H. Holmes, is often considered to be one of America's first serial killers. He became famous for his horrific bed and breakfast that doubled as an intricate dungeon where he slaughtered his victims. Sisters Minnie and Nanny Williams are believed to have been two of Holmes's many victims before his 1894 capture. He hoped to build a second torture castle on land he'd inherited from Minnie after tricking her into marrying him. Rumor has it that the auditorium annex was one of Holmes's favorite hunting grounds. Be wary as you wander the hotel's floors at night. 
for Holmes may wish to practice his vivisection on you next. Up next, would it really be a Chicago story without an unearthly visit from Al Capone? Now, back to the story. If you wake in the night at the Congress Plaza Hotel and hear shoes clicking down the hall, it might be worth checking the hallway. Sure, it might be a tipsy campaign aide getting ready to catch a few hours of shut-eye before her flight, but there was a time when even wise guys' shoes had heels. It might be your only opportunity to meet a real live mobster. Well, formerly alive. If the 1893 World's Fair was Chicago's first golden age, the Prohibition era was its silver. The FBI warred with notorious gangster Al Capone, while bootleggers and mafiosos made money hand over fist. Several members of Al Capone's organization stayed at the Congress Plaza Hotel and even claimed that they held a man there for several days. The apparition of a mysterious man in a dapper 1920s-era suit has been seen in both the former club and the hotel hallways. But before Capone was jailed for tax evasion in 1931, the iconic mobster was known for his charity work. He was cheered at Wrigley Field and was close with the city's mayor, William Hale Thompson, and the Chicago police force. Then, Capone ordered the assassination of seven of his Irish-American rivals on February 14, 1929. The men were mowed down by machine guns in Chicago's north side, and the media was particularly shocked by the reports that the gunmen had masqueraded as police officers in order to lead the scene. The pressure was on, and even Capone's connections couldn't save him. The authorities would be forced to get creative with their accusations. To this day, the so-called St. Valentine's Day Massacre remains unsolved. This is partially the result of the ring of contradictions between different mobsters and hitmen as they turned state's witness or claimed responsibility for the slayings only to recant. But as with any mafia hit, there was some cleanup involved, and no one's better at cleanup than a hotel maid. Tony Tiny Alessi was a fastidious cleaner. Whether it was gore or rumor, he knew how to scrub and bribe with the best of them. This made him very popular with the Chicago outfit, and he was very grateful for the patronage of a man as noble and loyal as Al Capone. He operated out of Congress Plaza, taking business meetings in the hotel's gold room before heading to the north side to scour a back alley. Mr. Capone, he never called him Scarface, the boss hated that, didn't want to tip off the Irish before things were in place. Valentine's Day had gone down without a hitch, in theory, but the hitmen, who Tony had never liked, had been too flashy. 90 bullets was 83 too many for the event's seven-man body count. Tony's plan of getting them in and out with the perfect cover story had fallen to pieces when they squandered his beautiful borrowed police uniforms on a high-caliber spray-and-pray approach that appeared to have roused the whole North Side. What's worse, they hadn't even killed their intended target. 
the Northside gang's leader, Bugs Moran. Tony had had to scramble to get cops loyal to the boss to do the cleaning for him, and they quickly assembled a list of witnesses who had spoken to the police. It was ridiculous, really. Even the sole survivor of the initial attack, one of Moran's enforcers, knew how to keep his mouth shut. When the boys in blue asked him for the names of his killers, he told them, no one shot me, and died like a good little soldier. Most of the witnesses grasped the need for silence quickly enough, but one was giving them particular trouble. Trip Samuels was about as dapper and as useless as his name suggested, and the waspy dandy had walked by 2122 North Clark Street at exactly the wrong time. He had helpfully told the police he had an eye for faces, and he'd pretty effectively described the hitman Tony liked the least in the outfit. But Tony had to put his personal feelings aside. Putting any member of the organization out to dry meant risk to everyone, and Tony could never abide risk. So he had his people, the good, subtle, disciplined people, begin a conversation with Mr. Samuels. Samuels was more stubborn than he'd expected. Tony had hoped it would only take an hour or two to convince him of the gravity of the situation, reminding him that the future Mrs. Helena Samuels would be far prettier alive than dead. But Samuels remained stubborn in his belief of the rule of law. Things were changing, he argued. People were looking for him. How nice it must have been to have a rich father, Tony thought. When he felt his irritation becoming too great, he stepped away from the hotel room. He didn't want to lose control and hit Samuels someplace visible. Tony went down to the hotel bar for a bourbon and a sidecar. There was a rowdy party that night, and when he'd taken in enough of the sights and sounds of the inebriated gaiety, he took the elevator back up to the eighth floor. But one of his subordinates' face was white, the other was nursing a swiftly growing black eye. Samuels was gone. It had only taken a moment, the guard swore. He'd been checking the window because of a commotion outside when the man had slipped his ropes and made a run for it. Tony was livid. He wanted to gun down his useless guard there and then, but he had to move. He knew where Samuels would be going and he had the presence of mind to station two lookouts at the Congress's main entrance. He'd have time to catch little Mr. Moneybags if he hurried. The party spilled out into the lobby, and the escaped hostage would have to pick through the chaos of the drunken revelers. Tony sighted him between the bar and the front doors. Samuel's shirt was still untucked, just a hint of blood on his collar. He didn't look particularly out of place. Tony smirked as Samuels realized he was trapped. There were a few benefits to a not-so-subtle look at times. Nothing screamed Cosa Nostra, quite like the almost comically broad Scalise and Anselmi standing awkwardly by the golden doors to the street. Pretty Boy wouldn't be going that way. Samuels turned on his heel and headed back into the crowd. Tony waited patiently to find him again but it was taking longer than he'd like. It was a good 15 seconds before he caught the motion of the swinging door to the kitchens. Tony sprinted after Samuels, not caring who saw. His revolver was heavy in his pocket. 
In the kitchen, Samuels was limping past the pantry. He and Tony locked eyes as he dashed towards a dark staircase. Tony picked up the pace as the two of them barreled into the basement. Tony looked left, then right. Steam billowed from a boiler. He drew his gun, listening for any sign. The man rushed out of the darkness, bowling Tony over and sprinting into the depths of the hotel. Tony heard a slam behind him. Tony chased after Samuels, throwing himself through another metal door. Footsteps echoed against cold marble. Tony had found himself in a dark tunnel, cavernous in size. He listened again, finger on the trigger of his gun. Finally, he heard Samuel's breath. Not exhausted, just quick. Then he fired. The first shot missed, as did the second and the third. Tony could hear Samuel's begin to run. He took a deep breath. Then he fired again. It struck true. Tony found himself at the center of the tunnel, blood pooling on the marble. He ended his misery, then looked up. There was someone down here with him. He reloaded, searching the darkness, but all was still. He heard the whisper again. Tony didn't believe in ghosts, but he believed in consequences. He began to mutter the Lord's Prayer to himself as he headed back towards the hotel. The guard from upstairs walked out of the dark. One more shot pierced the silence. Tony's body fell, his forehead pierced with a single efficient bullet hole. It left a hell of a mess. When the Congress Plaza Hotel was originally built, it was constructed with an underground marble-lined tunnel known as Peacock Alley. It represented an easy point of egress for wealthy guests to evade the elements on their way to attend shows at Lewis Sullivan's impressive Auditorium Theater across the street. Rumors of Al Capone's connection to the hotel have swirled ever since he rose to prominence. But there is a suspicious lack of records when it comes to both his potential stays there and his stake in ownership. This is strange, considering the hotel's reputation as a place to see and be seen. Capone was famous for his love of food, drink, and women, and the luxurious club on the hotel's lower floor seemed like the perfect place for a beloved mob boss to unwind. But the lack of evidence doesn't seem to bother Capone's ghost, who has been sighted around the hotel, strolling the halls in his wingtip shoes, especially near the eighth floor, where he was rumored to have kept a private suite. Coming up, the Congress Plaza Hotel faces a tragedy on the 13th floor, with its roots in one of the most sinister secrets of American and European history. Now, back to the story. The Congress Plaza Hotel has undergone major renovations and expansions since it opened. From the addition of an entire tower in 1907 to the conversion of one of the ground floor lounges into a nightclub with a revolving bandstand. Now known as the Joseph Urban Room, the club was the recording location for an NBC radio show featuring Benny Goodman. 
When the United States entered World War II, the U.S. Army purchased the hotel to convert it into a headquarters for their officers. But two years before Pearl Harbor, and less than a month before Germany invaded Poland to initiate the Second World War, a young Czech refugee was fighting a battle for her family's safety and her own health. She would lose that battle on the 13th floor of the Congress Plaza Hotel. Adelia had only been in the country for four weeks, but she already knew that there was no life for her here. It wasn't the language or the false sincerity she saw in people around her. It was the changes, the small reminders that she was not home, that she could never go home again. Her husband, Carl, had told her to focus on the positives. They had two beautiful boys, Jan Misha and Carl Tommy. They had an apartment, this was the land of opportunity. They could be anything here, anything but successful. Carl had been forced to sell his textile factory when the Nazis came to Prague. Now they lived in a basement. Cracks of sunlight fought to get down to their level, but never quite reached. Adelia missed the twinkling light of the chandelier in their foyer, the way the sun caught the glass as it glinted off the snow outside their windows. Her heart ached for home every moment of every day. But home was gone, swallowed in the Germans' insatiable maw. There was no help here. She could barely communicate with the people around her. Each supposedly friendly face made her want to spit. They played at kindness, but she knew the truth. The country didn't want them here. A refugee visa had been impossible to get. Death in their homeland wasn't enough of a reason for the United States to open its arms to them. So now they were tourists. Six months of borrowed time before they had to run again, beg again, be turned away again. Every port closing until the tide swept them back to Czechoslovakia, to death or something worse. Her whole life, she had been warned to never forget the suffering. As a Jewish woman, it was her duty to remember the persecution her people had faced. She had always done her best to reflect on those that had come before her. She had tried to help as many people as she could in Prague. But here in America, she saw the smiling face of ignorance. They did not care about her suffering. They wanted only for these problems to exist an ocean away from them. They did not care that Adelia's world had ended, or that it was about to end again. She was tired of suffering in silence. Adelia waited for Carl to leave for work. Then she dressed their children and took them for a trip across the city. They spent hours at the park. Misha's little legs tripped over sticks and rocks as she chased Tommy through the green grass. When they could no longer stay upright, Adelia bought them all ice cream and told them they deserved a night above the ground. The lobby of the Congress Plaza Hotel reminded her of the opulence that had once belonged to her back home. It was an island in a sea of hardships and disappointment. She checked in as Della Frank and asked for an airy room, one that reminded her of the supposed wide-open spaces the country offered. 
Misha tugged on Adelia's skirts, asking who Della was. Adelia patted his head. She told them that Della was a friend, someone who was going to save them from their fate. Misha nodded his head, looking so much older than his four years. Adelia let Misha press the button in the elevator. She told him that 13 was sometimes a lucky number here. She didn't know why, but it would be their lucky number today. She let the children explore the space before taking them to nap. The receptionist had picked a splendid room for them with views of Michigan Avenue. A sea of faceless strangers passed far below her. The Green Park and Blue Harbor glittered in the August sun. Adelia tried to tire them out, but the boys woke up for a late dinner. Her hands tied, they ventured out again as dusk faded to darkness. She found herself lost in the crowd she'd studied a few hours ago, faceless blurs in the night. She felt Tommy's hand slip out of hers, found herself grabbing at empty air. Her breath quickened as she frantically searched the crowd in front of her, but there were too many people and not enough street lamps. She heard him scream. A blonde-haired woman was carrying him across the street. Adelia's heart stopped. She pulled Misha into her arms and dove across the road. She felt the press of metal on her stomach, but she was barely able to register the car as it clipped her. She rushed forward, even as the driver got out and yelled at her. She couldn't take her eyes from the woman that had her son. Adelia raced after them. Misha bounced in her arms, asking what was happening. She didn't have time to explain. Adelia barreled into the woman, freeing her son from the stranger's claws. The woman tried to explain that she'd been taking the child to a police station. He was lost, after all. Adelia shifted Misha's weight so she could hold him with one arm as she placed a comforting hand on Tommy's head as he clutched at her skirt. She told the woman she could keep her own children safe. She did not need someone else to cart them off. The woman tried to say that she meant no harm, but Adelia was already running back across the street with her children. They were hers to keep safe. No one else's. No one cared. The three of them ate dinner in strained silence. Misha asked where his father was. Adelia told him that Papa was very busy and they mustn't trouble him when he was working so very hard for them. Tommy's cheeks were marked with tear stains. He'd been so frightened by the other woman. He asked if he was going to get taken away. He had seen his old schoolmates ripped from their parents' arms. He held his breath as Adelia wrapped him in a fur coat-softened embrace. Adelia was quick to reassure Tommy. They were in America now. That would not happen here. Not yet. He nodded his head, but she could tell that he did not believe her. She wasn't sure that she believed herself. They headed back through the crowds to their sanctuary at the hotel. Even in the middle of the night, the streets were teeming with people. Nothing ever stopped here. It was Tommy's turn to press the elevator button, sending them shooting up into the sky. The first smile he had seen since that woman had taken him blossomed on his cheeks. Her sweet boy. She tucked them into bed and went to sit by the vanity. 
Adelia studied her reflection in the mirror. She knew what needed to be done. She just wasn't ready. But then she thought of that woman, of Tommy's fears. Her children would never know the suffering that others had. She wouldn't let that happen. Adelia picked up a razor and dragged it slowly across her wrist. The pain was sharp, making the whole room go white around her. Her teeth tore into her lip. She couldn't scream out and wake the boys. The pain was excruciating. She could not put them through that. There would have to be another way. She turned away from the bathroom and paced through the room. Her options were limited. The room was stifling. Adelia opened a window, letting the breeze and the noises of city life into the space. The cool night air called to her. The crowds had only grown while she'd been singing her children to sleep. All of those people who had no idea of what others were enduring. All those people who were content to sit back and watch as it happened. Or more likely, turn away completely. Adelia sang a prayer for herself and her boys. She lifted them up, one in each arm. Carefully, she ducked their heads under the window. The drop didn't look as bad here. It would hurt less. Her children wouldn't notice at all. They were far too lost in the land of dreams. Adelia ducked her own head out of the window. She kissed each boy in the top of his head holding them tightly. And then, she leaped. On August 3rd, 1939, 43-year-old Adelia Langer threw herself from the 13th floor of the Congress Plaza Hotel. She was following her sons, four-and-a-half-year-old Jan Misha and six-year-old Carl Tommy, who she'd pushed out of the window right before her leap. Her left wrist was slashed, but her sons showed no sign of trauma, aside from the final fall. Her husband, Czech-Jewish former textile factory owner, Carl Langer, told a jury inquest that his wife had begun to speak of taking her life and the lives of their sons shortly after the family entered the United States the month before on six-month tourist visas. They'd applied for refugee status, thanks to the invasion and ensuing occupation of Czechoslovakia by the Third Reich. But the application was denied. But it appears that one or both of the Langer boys have decided to make the best of their afterlife. The small ghosts have been known to make mischief at the Congress Plaza Hotel, from hiding objects to rearranging furniture. Many hotel employees report the sensation of being chased down Adelia's fateful hallway in the hotel's north wing. And there are rumors that her actual room itself is so frightening that it's permanently locked, holding a sinister presence at bay. All hotels are liminal spaces, stopgaps between one place and another, a temporary home away from home. The built-in anonymity makes them the perfect place to disappear, whether the cause be scandal, murder, or suicide. At a little more than a hundred years old, the Congress Plaza Hotel has a relatively short history, 
but it's frequently cited as the most haunted place in the state of Illinois. It is an artifact of a swiftly growing Chicago, a home for both great progress and great corruption. Its spectral footprint is no different. While the Congress's ghosts include charming tales like Peg Leg Johnny, a mischievous but mostly good-natured transient who was believed to have been murdered in the hotel, more sinister tales include a woman lurking on the edge of the bed in room 441 and the disembodied hand of a workman walled up during the construction of the hotel's opulent gold room event space. The gold room is also the site of a very strange and specific phenomenon. Bridesmaids who attempt to take pictures in front of the ornate moldings or grand piano have been known to disappear in the final photograph, leaving other members of the wedding party still in the frame. But even with all these spectral happenings, feel free to check in. Plenty of presidents and dignitaries have done just that. The views outside the Congress are incredible. Though, if you sleep in the right room, or walk down the wrong hallway, you're likely to see someone, or something, much more memorable. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Chicago's Congress Plaza Hotel, amongst the many sources we used, we found both the reporting of the Chicago Tribune and the historical archive of the Southeast Missourian, as well as Eric Larson's Devil in the White City, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>